Welcome to Afro Leads the Podcast. Afro Leads consists of two sisters, myself, Julie and Steph, and we're on a mission to promote UK Black business and culture. At present, we have an Instagram platform where we post positive daily posts about Black business groups, communities, celebrities, music and so much more. Today we have the honour of Christian Weaver's company. Born in Nottingham, from a young age, this king has kept his eye on the prize. He studied the qualifying law degree, the LLB, and then went on to study the BPTC, the course to qualify as a barrister. He won the Vice-Chancellor's Award during the undergraduate degree that he took and gave the Vote of Frank speech during his graduation too. He was called to the bar at just 22 years old and is currently a barrister at Garden Court North Chambers. Christian is passionate about law being accessible to all and providing strong representation to those most vulnerable in society, which is something that we absolutely love to hear. This passion led for him to create 60-second bite-sized legal videos on YouTube, The Law in 60 Seconds, giving the audience powerful and useful insights and education in the UK legal system. The Law in 60 Seconds, Know Your Rights, is soon to be launched in paperback, and hopefully we'll have time to talk about this today in the podcast, but ultimately we cannot wait to purchase and support this, Christian. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. That is an amazing welcome. I'll definitely come here more often. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's all true. And we're all, we were, just before we obviously started recording, we we're just saying how proud we are of you. But yeah, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute honor to have you on to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm sure everyone says this, but the work you guys do is brilliant as well. So it's an honor oh. and my heart to be here as well. So no, thank oh. you. Thank you for that. Thank you. So how are you doing? How's everything been? Restrictions now lifting or on the verge of lifting? So this is third lockdown, but how have you been over this weird period? Oh, there's been times when actually I've really valued having the, the quieter time. Then there's been other times when I just wanted to get out. I made the comment before we came on air that my haircut right now is atrocious. <laughs> yeah. so April the 12th, I'm the first one in the barbershop for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but overall, no. Complaints. And I guess in a sense, I've moved back to my family home in Nottingham while lockdown's been on. So it's actually meant I can spend some time with the family that I wouldn't normally be able to do when I'm up in Manchester. So yeah, it's had its benefits as well. Oh, that's great. That is lovely. Yeah. We'd say the same. I think we've had some times where we thought, I can't wait for normality and in inverted commas, whatever that means for everybody is different. But just seeing people and, you know, being able to kind of just crack on and you know I think life before this was quite fast paced for most of us but on the flip side I've really enjoyed the slower pace as well that's given me other perspectives and other opportunities so I think everybody's kind of had the pros and cons potentially especially with work and family and things there's definitely swings and roundabouts that we can take from it yeah. for sure. So you say that you're back in the family home in Nottingham and are you Nottingham born and bred? Yeah so yeah. literally from I'm trying to think so born in Nottingham primary school, secondary school, university. And then I moved to London for a little bit and then came back to Nottingham and then to Manchester. But because I've always been interested in politics and law to an extent as well, naturally that takes you all around the country just for maybe mm -hmm. meetings or events you'll go to. So I've always felt like, I think Nottingham is, is a relatively small city. So you can easily feel like Nottingham's the world. But I think because from a young age, I was able to experience different parts of the country. While I see Nottingham as home, I've always seen myself as a citizen of the, the wider country as well if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely and do you mind me asking what's your heritage like where are your parents from and sure so both of my parents were born in the UK but my mum's father was Nigerian and my mum's mother was Jamaican and then on my dad's side both parents are Antiguan and they were born in Antigua and I've been to all of those places Antigua is beautiful and to be honest I've not been in a while which is a bit of a shame but um I think now I'm older actually they're places I would want to check out more, almost to become more in tune with myself as well and where my family are from. Mm -hmm. um, and especially as people get older as well, you know, I think this year especially, or, or last year, 2020, you became very aware of death, if that makes sense. So I think it's actually almost increased the want to, to meet family abroad, to get to know them effectively, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I feel that totally. Like we're both obviously sisters and our parents are from Ghana and we've been to Ghana. I've been lucky enough to go to Ghana, but not for ages. I think the last time was maybe 20 odd years ago, whereas Julie's been quite a few times and um, the, the stories, the pictures, the, it just, it, I mean, she's learning Chui as well. So 
mm. there is this sense of I think once you start getting a, a sense of home it's infectious you want to learn more and more and you just get kind of you realize what potentially you've been missing while still being incredibly proud of our British culture as well it's, it's but it's a beautiful thing to have that, you know that kind of mixing pot of different environments and you know that you can learn from the best of everything really so mm. no I'd love that I'd love to go to Antigua as well I'd love to go to, to be fair every time we have a guest on and they tell us their heritage I, it's, it adds another list another, <laughs> another country that I'd like to go to I'd love to go to Jamaica as well um yeah it would just be so beautiful the food is incredible as I'm sure you can attest to <laughs> but yeah I'd love to travel there do you have any siblings Christian no I'm an only child I'm an only child are you I was completely fine with it. and now as I go like into the world and my friends tell me about their siblings I start to get a bit jealous actually but prior to that, <laughs> I was fine with being an only child so growing up, it was obviously you and your parents and what was young Christian like? What was your life like as you were growing up? What was your like family relationship like? Because we see the snapshot of this polished, super articulate, very ambitious, just amazing like young lad. But I, I suppose let's rewind and try and find out what you were like when you were a little bit younger. <laughs> sure, no, thank you. I think I've always been quite serious, if that makes sense. So in terms of knowing right and wrong. And I think that was something my parents instilled in me from quite a young age. And I came from a, a religious family, I suppose, as well. So my grandfather was the pastor in the church. So although I should be going to church on more Sundays than I do, if I'm honest, still within me, there's that deep principles and, and religion that, that exists. But I think for me, yeah, there's always been a knowing of right and wrong. And I think a key thing was, I was born just after the murder of Stephen Lawrence. And I think it meant that I was very aware of my, my blackness, if that makes sense, from a young age. So I was speaking to someone about this recently, but it's even now as a big 26 year old, my mum is sometimes like, oh, Christian, I don't want you to go there because of X, Y, Z, because she grew up, she was raising a black child at a time when you could just kill for a racist reason. And then I think growing up in Nottingham as well, especially at the time I was, it was, people used to call it Shottingham. Um, and you can read about what Nottingham was like back then. So I think, even there, I mean, and I, I was kind of removed from it to an extent because of the area I lived in, but I mean, it was still very much going on around. So yeah, I think I was a serious individual, but also very aware of race and racism in society from quite a young age as well. I wonder, is that what sparked your interest? You said you initially had a big interest or you still have an interest in politics and law. Is that, did that kind of steer you in that direction, being so aware of these injustices from such a young age? Well, Partly, yeah. I think one of my earliest childhood memories is my grandfather was subjected to the racist incidents, really. So his car would be parked on his drive and there was someone who I, I don't think we ever found out who it was, but they would leave um, dog feces on his car, which obviously is a very deliberate act. And a dog, do you know what I mean? The person was picking, mm. physically smearing it on his car. It's awful. Yeah. And I remember, or at least the recollection of nine-year-old Christian Weaver, but we, we contacted the police and they were saying, well, there's nothing we can really do. So in the end, my granddad put a sign up outside his house saying, this family will not be intimidated by racists. And it actually got a bit of press coverage at the time as well. And the incident stopped. But I think if you can imagine as a nine-year-old, like looking out, I mean, firstly, you're quite inspired because it's like, wow, your granddad's really taking matters into his own hands. But additionally, it does really make you think, wow, okay, when the powers that be, i.e. the police aren't able to protect you. And I, I, I don't want to, overstated because I appreciate it was my nine-year-old mind but I certainly remember thinking at nine when the powers that be don't protect you like who does and seeing what my granddad had to do to make these incidents stop I think from a young age just gave me a really deep insight into what it can be like to maybe not hold the balance of power in society and so many deep things that maybe a nine-year-old when they should be watching Thomas the Tank or whatever nine-year-olds do <laughs> maybe that's a bit too old for that age but yeah I was thinking about those really serious questions. That's powerful. It is. It really is powerful. Because I think, see, I'm the opposite. I'm somebody that I think now really sometimes gets overwhelmed with the injustice of the world because I was probably so blinkered when I was younger. It's hit me a lot later on in life. And it takes, a, you know, I think when you've got more of a mature mind and you're analysing things a little bit more differently because you are older, it can be a little bit heavier. Whereas I think 
if you have access and if you have you know the visibility growing up gradually you're introduced to these things I don't know what's better or worse actually I think obviously both it's quite horrible to experience it and whether you're young or old but you know it definitely something that I think would have shaped me slightly differently and maybe had more of a serious approach to these things from a younger age because um, I was really not bothered or interested about politics as a young boy to have to process that that's really that's deep isn't it that is really deep and of course it's going to form your formative years as well yeah and it's interesting because I mean it's the first time I'm probably speaking about it like this as well and and it just felt so normal at the time I mean even around the dinner table at, when I was with the whole family politics was just the topic of conversation so yeah I kind of naturally was brought up with it and my family generally are quite political just in terms of even their own activities so I guess in a way it was empowering because what I did realize is that you don't have to feel like you don't have power like even if you by virtue of your quote and inverted commas whatever but you're standing in society you might not think you have power maybe due to your color your race your economic background but you can take steps you can take action to still get what you want and especially through for example, community organizing and all of these different things. So I think in a sense it was empowering. Although when I say it here, I realize how it was probably so atypical to the normal upbringing or the life of a child effectively. I think it maybe it combines lots of elements that you mentioned. I think your family have demonstrated what can happen. You know, you said that the, with the racism your grandfather experienced. Number one, they didn't hide it from you because a lot of people, they uh, some people have shared racism that their families have experienced but they've known about it in retrospect because their parents have quickly got up and cleaned or removed whatever sign or kind of thing has been put you know so that they don't see it so they've shielded them from it and I'm not saying you weren't shielded but you know you've been aware of it and perhaps it you know I think often when I meet people who are only children you grow up a bit quicker because you sat at a table mm. with adults all the time so they're involving you in these conversations and if they themselves are demonstrating how they can be the solutions or bring about the solutions when you say like the powers that be or the people you would normally expect to have an impact to so it puts that seed in your mind that you have power you can change things so I think that's wonderful and yeah I think it's really encouraged because I think when with the murder of Stephen Lawrence I do remember that as well we're a bit older than you and I do remember my mum being absolutely horrified and just so grateful that we weren't and uh, we grew up in East Yorkshire the only black family in our small town still are like almost 40 years later. And, but so, you know, nowhere's perfect, but you have a completely different experience. No, I'm not saying racism doesn't exist, but I think my mum was just, I don't know. It's, I think at that, up to that point, my mum had been pushing for us to move somewhere more kind of metropolitan, more diet, you know, but then after that, she's actually, maybe we should just, it's safe oh, wow. where we are and just maybe just be as we are. So yeah, I do recall her being very worried about us, especially my brothers. Is it almost the case that you remember that that switch in terms of, you know, at first the ambition was maybe move to London or somewhere like that. And then all of a sudden when it changed following that murder. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's actually really powerful. Mm. Yeah. It was crazy, but I can't actually remember talking about it like as a family like I think it's really I think like like Julie's picked up there I think it's wonderful that regardless of age like you were involved and had conversation about that because I think if 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 not I think myself included you are unarmed to have those conversations with other people if you can't have an honest conversation at dinner table it's really difficult to have a conversation about something that is so important especially to you as a black person away from the family I used to just not have those conversations because all my friends were white I wouldn't say I was ashamed of anything but I also didn't know how to have those conversations because if they're not talking about it or if if I don't know how to bring it up into a conversation it was really difficult but I think it's a really beautiful powerful thing that to have a family of all ages whether grandparents are there as well kids and everybody talk about things that were you know quite triggering to the community to us as black people but also the good things that were happening within the community because all of that is building who you are and your core values as, as a person isn't it so I think that's something that I will take on board that I think that's really powerful well no thank you and I think I mean 
I'm at that age where I start to think, oh, how would I raise my children? And I think actually there are certain things, i.e. the conversations around the dinner table where, you know, people are just talking about these really important issues that is actually so useful now that I look back. So, yeah, no, certainly. It's, it's even the fact that you are at a dinner table. Life can be so busy and stressful. Often, you know, in our family fell foul of this, that, you know, food would be prepared and you just got it when you were ready to eat it. And you missed that whole chance to gather and be you know, to, to kind of at the end of a busy working day to, you know, convene together and talk. And that's so important. So, yeah, that's a valuable thing to continue with. And I just wonder, with regards to when you decided that law was going to be what you would pursue, how did you find it? Was it easy to get work experience? Or when you're also looking around at the different institutions that you might study at, what was your experience of all of that? Sure. So, in fact, I went to a college called Bilbrough College in Nottingham. So it's one of the largest colleges, perhaps even the largest college, or at least when I was doing my levels in Nottingham. And I remember I went to a taster day and the, the teacher there, and it's actually so sad, she passed away with cancer while I was actually on the course, but she was just so inspiring. Her name was Kate Little. And I remember thinking, wow, like she just, she just made law sound amazing. And I guess because of my childhood and the fact that law had always been a bit of an undercurrent in my life. And I guess while I didn't have any lawyers in my family and had very few connections to lawyers, I don't know if I knew any at the time, my grandfather had been a magistrate. So magistrates, they're not legal professionals or lawyers, but they're people, literally members of the public that can sit in the magistrate's court and, and hear cases and stuff. So through that, I had a bit of an interest in law anyway. But yeah, she just really inspired me. And yeah, that made me do the law A-level. And then from there, it sort of all just built. But it's funny, at the start you were saying how it appears that I'm kind of polished now and that was not the case at, at A-level. I think sometimes my friends see the odd thing I'm doing and think, ah, this is, soon, soon, they'll, <laughs> soon they'll be exposed because um, <laughs> I, um, I actually missed my A-level or exam because I put it that it was in the afternoon instead of the oh, morning. What? Oh, yeah, so I retake it. And even now I, I go back and do talks at the college and my, um, my, my old tutor always introduces me as this <laughs> young man that just gave her stress. Um, but <laughs> it worked out okay in the end, fortunately. That's but actually, a valuable yeah. lesson because I, think, I mean, I'm thinking now, like I'm panicking for you, but I, I, I can't imagine what you must have felt when you realized that you'd got time wrong. Because you would feel oh. that the world is over, but actually it's not. And look what you've been able to achieve since then. So it's great <laughs> for young people to see that and know that. No, I think it's funny because I remember so much about that day because I've been researching um, what foods to eat before an exam so that you're really sharp for the exam. So before, in the morning when I was meant to be in the exam hall, I was buying like a banana, <laughs> slow releasing energy. And then obviously I didn't do the exam. But, um, oh no, I think... Christian, I feel so bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was certainly an experience. But I, th I think even after that, so... That was a real kick for me. I realized I can take things much more seriously. And I, looking back, I'm so glad it happened. But then I didn't get into my first choice university. And I think that specifically, because I mean, the, the A-level law exam I could retake and I still got a good grade. But I think overall not getting into my university of first choice was actually such a big moment for me. Because I think prior to that, my little, it was almost kind of a nice, almost a nice little quirk, like, oh, Christian's quite intelligent but it sometimes will miss an exam whereas now it just wasn't funny like the course of my life had somewhat changed because maybe I hadn't been as focused or dedicated as I should have been so I to this day think that the most the kind of biggest turning point in my life was not getting into my, my first choice uni. Do you mind me asking which was your first choice uni and where did you go? Yeah sure so I, my first choice was University of Birmingham and then in the end I didn't get in miss, just missed out on the grades and I went to Nottingham Trent University which anyone from Nottingham will tell you actually for law is, is a very respectful. It's really good, yeah. But of course, in my mind, I was thinking I wanted to go to University of Birmingham and University of Birmingham also is, a, is of course a red brick university. Yeah. So especially in the law, you have, mm -hmm. especially when you don't actually know lawyers, all you can go by is maybe what you'll see on people's LinkedIn profiles. And they'd certainly all gone to Oxbridge or certainly a red brick university. So I think for me, I realized, okay, I have to work a lot harder for people to, to prove myself effectively that although I'm not at a red brick institution, I'm still just as deserving as anyone else to be a lawyer and to be a human rights lawyer specifically, which was always my thing, never about just being a lawyer, but specifically human rights lawyer, helping those that don't have a voice in society. 
Amazing. Yeah, Nottingham Trent's amazing for law. So again, it's you've you landed well on your feet there. Did you think, you know, when you got to law school, and I asked this question to anybody who I'm having conversations with about studying, because I work in education and representation is a really big thing for me, whether it's you go, you do journalism, law, whatever course you do, I think your experience about the people that are teaching you is, is powerful and can make or break your experience. So I've, no, I've got no experience, as it were, or any contacts within Not Trent, but would you say you felt that the, the staff force reflected you? Do you think there could be benefits to maybe make staffing a little bit more diverse? What are your thoughts in terms of that? Or is it just me kind of having a, like a, an impression of what I think good would look like and it maybe doesn't make a difference at all you might just have good people teaching you that might just be amazing. That's a really interesting question I think well the staff were very good at the law school um first and foremost I'd definitely say that and I think certainly in terms of how I was taught there were I can't pinpoint an occasion where I felt like maybe I wasn't being treated as seriously because of my race but then when I think of the diversity of the workforce within the law school particularly it wasn't diverse at all looking back and I think there are a number of factors in that I think part of it is reflective of the fact that whilst the legal profession in and of itself is not diverse with many lecturers having been lawyers in a past life there naturally isn't that pull down of a diverse potential workforce so that might have been a factor and I think that would have been something nice, actually, looking back. I can't say it was something I thought of at the time, actually, but I think it would have been nice if there was greater diversity in the workforce. And a reason I say that as well is because I remember on the BPTC, it's called the BTC now, but that was the barrister training course. There was a time when I was really, I just felt like I wasn't doing well on it. And my overall grade was I actually got a very good grade on the BPTC. But at the time, oh yeah, it was, it was, I was in trouble. And I remember actually, I went to a, a black teacher and she gave me just brilliant advice. I thanked her literally a few weeks back just because I remembered it. But um, I don't know if maybe the fact that it was someone that looked like me meant that I could actually feel comfortable speaking to her about what I was going through and not feel judged as well, you know, because especially on those sorts of courses, you always want to appear like you're a barrister already. So I think actually having access to her, she, she happened to be my form tutor as well was actually so important looking back. Because um, I, to I totally hear what you're saying. So I think even my experience went way back when, many years ago at uni, there wasn't very much representation of my course. But when I look at the staff force that I work with within education, they're, you know, the, the, the staff themselves are crying out for diversity because they often feel the student body now are ahead of the, the, the teaching profession or the professors in terms of wanting diversity and wanting perspectives or a lived experience from different voices yes the course and the criteria and the curriculum will stay the same but people's questions and people's mindsets evolve with time evolve with society so the last year for example with you know George Floyd's murder mm. the conversations that have sparked in law classrooms in classrooms with you know humanities in classrooms with even you know medicine and all these you know people going down the police route it's very different to how many conversations we had maybe five or ten years ago it's student-led so of course a strong staff force of a you know, diverse background to have voices that can reflect the people that are you know potentially having the injustices it's a much powerful position to have decent debate and control the narrative and have decent conversations and I always think especially with the law especially the bar you're on your feet all the time doing advocacy and all that kind of you want to kind of show that you are you know prepared and ready to go for it but if you have that relationship with people and you can see yourself is, as a success because of the people that are teaching you as well, I think it's very different for students that potentially are from a non-white background because it's, I think I, I, look, at, I look at every institution and the, the staff, the professors, the staffing, predominantly white. And like you say, it's because of a number of factors. I can't obviously list them all, but I think from my perspective anyway, I think you'd see such a change in terms of confidence in, change of, in terms of relationship between student and professors. I think it would just be such a stronger environment for all if that diversity was there. I think that's so true. And I think especially in an area like law as well, whereby, unfortunately, the experiences of maybe, I'm going to just be really simplistic here, but of a, a, a black person or a white person can differ so much. So, exactly. you know, if you, if you class the police as a person's first interaction with the, the legal process or the law, if you like, you are literally nine times more likely to be stopped and searched if you are black. So I think in order that, I think effective teaching, especially on those sorts of issues, actually does need to be done 
um, or is certainly assisted if it's done by a, a diverse workforce because because of the, the stark contrast in um, experiences that exist among the student population that probably is that bit more diverse. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I wonder, do, moving on to kind of um, the work you've started with the law in 60 seconds, was it either personal experiences or experiences of peers that led you to create it? Because you're informing and, and for arming people to know their rights, their legal rights in bite-sized chunks that are really re relatable, digestible, but what kind of started all of that? Sure, so it was the period of time when I was living in London, I think it would have been 2018, and knife crime was all over the news, a lot of high profile deaths at the time, and stop and search was being cited as a way to combat it. And in fact, going back to the point we were speaking about earlier, about nine times more likely to be stopped and searched if you're black. I think, you know, Piers Morgan and the like can debate it on shows, the efficacy of stop and search and, and all of this. But I think when you're coming from a community whereby the reality of this policy is that it's going to affect me, whether, I'm, whether I've done anything or not, I need to be more aware because if this policy exists, I'm more likely to be on the receiving end of it. And I think I kind of thought, look, I'm in no position to influence the policies or the procedures carried out by the Metropolitan Police Force. But actually what I can do is inform my friends and family of their rights if they do find themselves stopped and searched. And a stop and search can be a really traumatic process. When you've done absolutely nothing wrong, it can actually be horrifying. I've got friends that will attest to this. So um, literally, the first video was on stop and search. I put it on my Instagram, which was a private Instagram account. There was no intention for this student to go as it now has. But I did also post it on, obviously, YouTube through the link on my Twitter account, which wasn't private. And then from there, it got way more traction than I expected, not least because I recorded it on a two megapixel iPad. And then I think from there, I realized, wow, there really is this need for people to know their legal rights in everyday situations. And then from there, it continued. And I've sort of been doing videos ever since. And I think, particularly when I was still working my nine to five, I felt like I didn't have time and all sorts of things to record these videos, but I get messages from people just saying how much it helped them. And then that kind of served as continual fuel to keep doing these videos. So yeah, that was how it started really. Brilliant. And I loved it. I shared it with everybody as well. We've got two oh. other brothers. <laughs> and also I think because I, I've not got any sort of legal background whatsoever, and I've never touched wood, I've never had a, an experience, a negative experience with the police, but I always did think to myself, should something happen, I need to be armed with some information, but never got around to, because I've been thinking it would be a mammoth task, where would I find the resources, what would I look for, but the fact that there were so bite-sized chunks, somebody like myself who is, you know, not the most um, forthcoming in terms of like researching, it was so easy, and because I had such a good experience with it, I was like to my younger brothers, have a look at this, it's so important. And they had the same thing, they were just sharing it as well. So from a perspective of, a, of somebody, like a fan, it was so interesting and just so, it was so needed and so timely as well. I couldn't be more proud. Yeah, it still is, it's something I need to revisit because actually in the wake of world events like last year, bringing up a lot that's underneath the surface, talking about people's responses to it and finding out for the first time that our brother we grew up in the same places but um our brother's experiencing being stopped by the police we haven't but they have you know because the, the experience is different for black men compared to black women and as you said it became in your consciousness when you were living in london compared to being in nottingham and yeah it's just so knowing what what should happen and being equipped with that knowledge Knowledge is power, isn't it? And you're giving people that power. It's brilliant. You should be really proud of it. No, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. What did your friends say when they kind of saw the traction? What, were they just like, oh my God, Christian, is that it again? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the thing is, in the first few, I'd not even comb my hair properly. So I think they were sort of thinking, you know, <laughs> but then I think from there, I, I took it more seriously as well because I actually appreciated how serious this was, you know. It never feels nice to feel like you don't hold the balance of power or, or in fact, maybe to rephrase, to, to know that effectively someone can do anything to you and there's actually nothing you can do in any, in any walk of life, that's not nice. And I realized that that is actually, even if it's subconscious, a norm that so, the vast majority of the UK population live with. If these videos can just seek to redress that, then that's good. So that was 
And, you know, my, my friends find it quite funny at the start, but I think when they saw me taking it more seriously, they, they really supported because it is so important. Yeah. Yeah. It's really it's great. Amazing. You do all of the animation and everything as well. Yeah. So the first animated video was the, the one on protest rights. And I remember the thinking behind that was the fact that um, if you're literally, I think in the wake of the, the death of George Floyd, people that never had planned to go to a protest in life thought, you know what, this is such an important issue that I'm going to go out there and protest. Yeah. Case in point, yes. And I think with that in mind, I thought, okay, well, there's going to be people at a protest that have no clue on their rights. And mm -hmm. as such, it's important that let's say they see a police officer approaching and think, oh my gosh, what's about to happen here? That they can actually, even if they can't quite hear everything, can just see what they might need to know. And that was why I thought a video animation, as opposed to me just mm. talking to a screen, might be more effective. And it was also appreciation that you got vulnerable people at protests. Oh, when I say vulnerable, I mean children as well. So things like knowing that, you know, if you're taken to a police station, your parent should be with you when you're interviewed, for example. Just key yeah. things like that that you might not otherwise know. And of course, I would genuinely like to think that the police would ensure that those things are done. But in case for whatever reason that doesn't happen, well, let's make sure you know your rights. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And that's vitally important. And you're right, it is, yeah, protesting last year, I've never done that before. And coming, doing it in the these COVID times, like Steph will testify, I was so freaked out because we've been mm. away from so many people, but mm. some, some areas and topics are bigger than self. Still trying to remain safe and the ones we attended did go to great lengths to try and maintain social distances, but still you in the space with a lot of people, a lot more people than you've been used to for a long time. But yeah, yeah so to know, I mean, and, and the protests we went to were all peaceful, you know, thank God, and very kind of empowering, quite cathartic in that kind of time. But yeah, you need to know your rights. And, and it's also, it's definitely, you're kind of empowering the community as well, because if something does happen, somebody around, somebody else around might have seen your videos and be forearmed and, and kind of maybe remind certain people of what their responsibilities are so that the right yeah. thing is done. So it's just so vitally important and it's all about equipping and empowering people and yeah. yeah and so wow so with the animation is that kind of a skill that you have always had or something you've developed along the way? <laughs> Def definitely developed so I remember for the protest video I thought right how can I make this more engaging and there's an app called it's called Video Scribe actually so I was I literally went on YouTube and I typed in how to make an animated video because I found that the videos that I found most engaging as a consumer of YouTube content were often animated videos and then I found this app called Video Scribe and there were YouTube tutorials and then I just was able to kind of piece it together so I remember staying up literally all night for the protest one and just, just trying to learn how to animate the 60 second video. So I'm much quicker now, but yeah, that first one took literally a whole night. Um, <laughs> <Bless you. laughs> oh, no. That's dedication for you though. That's amazing. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, I slept good when I, when I went. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a skill I had to learn, but I, but I guess it's a skill now that is so useful because I could be on the train coming back from court and I could literally be animating a video on my laptop on that dead train time. So Amazing. a useful way to fill time gaps, really. What has the response been from your peers in your profession? Gen generally really positive. I think, think even as lawyers, we appreciate that the law's not very accessible. Even as a lawyer, when you get a new, you're, you're, you're given a new case, part of the, the time you have before you actually enter the courtroom is reading up on that area of law. And if lawyers who have gone through years of law school have to do that, then, you know, it's it's not odd to think that a member of the public who has no knowledge of the law might have to do even more. So it's been generally really positive. And I think for members of the public as well, particularly positive. So, I mean, of course, you'll get negative comments as you would with anything. And I think particularly because Stop and Search was the first one. And the reality is that the project started because of my experiences of black male, effectively. There's always been the comments that perhaps have a slight racial undertone, but I literally don't pay that any attention because the vast majority are, are positive, which is which is nice. That's great. I'm really interested to know. So I've got a lot of friends that are, they're other solicitors, but I've got a couple that are barristers. And one is a black barrister. I've got um, a female friend who's of an Indian background. And I think 
from their perspective, whenever we have a catch up and we ever talk about representation, especially if they've come out of chambers or come out of court, the feeling of being othered is sometimes felt and it's not necessarily a conscious thing that they have gone into you know gone into work thinking oh, this is going to happen so it's intentionally happened but naturally sometimes you you, you go to the judge you look at the judge they don't, they don't look like you your, your opposition potentially doesn't look like you what's your experience been like because uh, there was another I can't remember the name of the girl who would put something up on, on social media and it did blow up that she was accused three times of being a um, a, diff- yeah. a client but it did resonate with me because I thought this isn't a one-off experience because the, my friends are a lot older than me they're like in their 40s and they said it's a, a reoccurring thing whereby people are often t- sometimes surprised when you know they wig up or if they introduce themselves as the, the solicitor or the barrister but not necessarily in a kind of overtly a racist way but it's, it's sometimes it's an unconscious thing as well and I keep thinking gosh we're in 2020 what are you sure What's your experience been like? Because somebody with fresh eyes as well, somebody who's got a lot of passion and just started their career. What's your experience been like with that? Certainly, I think it definitely exists. On a number of occasions when I go into court, I'll be mistaken for anyone but the lawyer. And as you say, it's very often, the staff might be really polite, but they just don't appreciate that I could be the lawyer. So that certainly exists. I think... I must admit as well, often you actually can build a better rapport with clients because they see you as more relatable sometimes. But no, it exists. And I think especially in your more junior days when you're still genuinely finding your feet, it can actually be a big confidence knock when, Mm. you know, you spend have a long trying to look sharp with your suit on in the mirror and then you walk into court and then there's just no respect for the time you've put in. Of course, in your early days, that that can knock your confidence. And I think actually in recognition of how prevalent this issue is I think chambers so chambers are where barristers work effectively but I think chambers have a responsibility to inform their young black barristers of the things they can expect because Mm. um, and and I think even wider than that and I'm pleased to see that it it appears to be happening now but those that run the courts and tribunal services need to be training staff to say look um, you can't just make these assumptions about people that are just Mm. coming to do their day job so it certainly exists. And I mean, if, I, if ever I talk to a, an entrant into the profession, I always give them the heads up. Okay, you need to look out for this. This is going to happen. And it's not a reflection of you. It's not a reflection of how you've dressed. It's just what's going to happen. This goes back to the point where you need more people that look like us in those professions because only you can give that lived experience to somebody who's going to do a pupillage interview or somebody who's coming to do a mini pupillage with you, work experience essentially. If they go to a, a chambers or if they're in an environment that is potentially very white, they're not going to hear those stories because that has never happened to them. Essentially, their lived experience is very different. Whereas this beautiful, diverse, multicultural, ch- ideal chamber environment, you're not only, you know, you can equip somebody who looks like you, but you can equip somebody who doesn't look like you as well. So that if they're witnessing these kind of things, they can be an ally and really stand up and say, you know, these, you know, this isn't right. And, and, and effectively, it goes back to that dinner table conversation. If you don't have the conversations, how can you equip yourself? How can you arm yourself professionally? As a, somebody who's new to, to the profession, you probably think I'll be quiet. And sometimes I, I've been in situations where I've apologised because I felt so awkward about the situation, even though they said something that's slightly, you know, basically racist or assumed that I couldn't have been the person that they come to meet because you don't look how your voice sounds. And I'm like, oh no, don't worry about it, it's fine. And why am I apologizing? You know, it's weird. So essentially it's that training, that, that those soft skills from people in a position of power influence who look like us that need to be able to pass the baton and educate us a bit better, I think. But you, again, it's about access, isn't it really? It's about, those people actually getting into the profession and then being in those positions just to share the knowledge and share the information. Absolutely. And I think what's been brilliant of, of recent is there's, there, there are a number of organisations now. I'm part of the Black Barrister Network, actually. And part of our objective is to empower, might be too strong a word, but be a support community for, for the Black Barristers. Yeah. And I think as more community or more organisations like that come up, I think it can only be a good thing. And I think it can also... Just be, I, I can't imagine how valuable that would be to somebody that's maybe going through their law degree now to see that if they do finally become a barrister after coming going through all the hurdles and getting a pupillage, that there are organisations they can join immediately that have their back. I think I, when I was going through, at least to what I can recall, that didn't really exist. So I think that can be really, really valuable and will be valuable moving forward. Definitely. And what you've both said is a combination of 
yes, being prepared for it, but then also doing putting in the work, whether it's calling it out, regardless of your ethnicity. So it doesn't keep happening. You can't keep have this can't be sort of an expectation that you as a black lawyer or barrister has to deal with on top of what you do. You know what I mean? Attitudes, mindsets have to change. So yeah, it, there's a there's a lot of work to do, but it's great that you have that kind of peer support and peer network. I just wondered if we could ask about your book. You have a book coming out. Are you happy to talk about that? Yeah, of course, of course. So it's coming out in September. It's called Know Your Rights, The Law in 60 Seconds. And in effect, it seeks to put into about 12 relatable chapters all of the everyday bits of law you ought to know. So your rights when you're renting, your rights in a shop, your rights when you're in a taxi. Just, just little things that should hopefully help you feel more comfortable in the world, but also help you claim your space in the world as well. So your rights if you're at a protest, your rights if you want to make a complaint. And the idea is that it's a small book that can literally be buried in the bottom of your bag, can kind of have on you at all times. And it's your trusty legal life jacket until, um, so you know, eventually you might need to get more serious legal help. But in that interim period, when you just want to get a sense of what the law might be, the book is there to, to serve. So yeah, that's, that's no, you're right. And I'm really looking forward to it. It's been a lot of, a long time in the making, many sleep, many, many sleepless nights, <laughs> but um, finally it's nearly there. So I'm just really excited to, to be sharing it into the world soon. And yeah. I mean, it's currently available as well for pre-order. So we'll just, Oh, wow. <laughs> Your parents must be absolutely so proud. Like they must skip out the door. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they're, they're, I think yeah they, they are which is which is nice but honestly the, the stress I put them through during college when I was an exam you know, it's not worth it it's pretty it's forgotten it's forgotten <laughs> what, what do what do you do so they're both self-employed actually so and I think even that is part of the reason why maybe the barrister lifestyle appealed to me because I like, granted you you work much longer than you would in a, in a, in a typical nine-to-five but there is that element of control over when you do the work. So I might decide to do an all-nighter and have the day off if I like, if, if possible. And I think seeing them do things like that was quite inspiring for me. So mm. yeah, yeah. There must be, Julie, you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head. Like we were, were big fans before and then just hearing you, I'm just like, oh my God, this is the, this is the template. <laughs> just sprinkle whatever he's at. Just, this is the template for children. <laughs> Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> you and your sprinkling. Um, oh, no. <laughs> I've just noticed a quirk that my sister and husband have in it. <laughs> Whenever I see something amazing, I'm just like, oh, this is just, you know, fat. and I just I'll do a little sprinkle because I just think oh. it's just so magical. And all the, all the way through this, I've just been like, God, it's just so, and you're so humble. Like, yeah. you just really, and really like approachable and one thing my brother did say when I did send it, uh, send the link across was um this is our youngest brother he said it's so nice to see like a normal guy who looks like us talking about stuff that is really really relevant timely and it being so successful as opposed to potentially because sometimes with things like this it, it can be like a white savior coming in and this is why we're doing it to help you guys but from his perspective it was I think seeing somebody who looked like him who was obviously ticked the boxes and done so well education wise and done well in your profession but you're just so relatable you're so nice and down to earth and to get that across in six twelve, well, very very short clips it's quite difficult so I was like oh god it's just amazing we'll have to try and get him on the podcast and here we are it's bloody brilliant <laughs> oh wow well I really appreciate that and I mean, even the 60 second clips, I, I don't know if you've ever tried to record yourself doing a 60 second video. It's the it hardest is. thing. It actually, you, we have. It's really hard. It is. You and just it notice. Out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, precisely. And like little twitches your face will do that you never even knew you had. Um, yeah. So even just in a sense, it's so this brilliant media training because I just mm. realized all of the little things that you need to watch when you're recording yourself. So, but no, that's really kind of, I appreciate that stuff. Thank you. And you you're welcome. That your passion is human rights, um, mm -hmm. and that's what you're the area that you're working in. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So the the chambers are not, they're quite unique in that we we only ever represent the uh, or um, perhaps to word another way we won't represent the states. So we represent the so-called 
a little man against the state. So if that's in a criminal setting, we'll be representing the defendant, i.e. the person who's been accused of committing a crime. And if it's in like a, a housing situation, we'll be representing the tenant as opposed to the landlord. And right. again, I mean, of course, it, it naturally pays less because you're representing people that um, by virtue of their position in society might not have the money to, to mm. fund out on expensive lawyer and everything. But I think in terms of job satisfaction and just feeling as if your job actually aligns with what you would want to be doing in a given day, like no. actually helping people. I, I can't fault it. I really do enjoy it. But it's so rewarding, yeah. honestly. What did you feel like when you first got your wig? The wig? Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to ask <laughs> this because I just see it as a bit <laughs> inconvenient sometimes. You, you know, when you're traveling to court, <laughs> six hours away, and if it wasn't for the fact that you needed to carry your gown and your wig, you could have just taken a rucksack, but instead you've got mm. a big case and then your schedule leaves you on the train and that's 1,000 pounds. <laughs> oh, it's just anxiety. <laughs> but, it's 1,000 um, pounds. The, the, altogether, the gown and the wig would have been for a thousand pounds, very expensive. And I think even there's a really serious discussion to be had there because they're the sorts of things that make this profession just yeah. less accessible. Mm. Um, yeah, agreed. And totally agree. It's not like you can get the wig and gown after a couple of weeks of starting. Like the, the first day you appear in court representing a client or in the Crown Court anyway, you're expected to have those things. So I think when we look at the profession, we talk about, we have the conversation about diversity at the bar, which is the, the conversation to be had right now. It's really important that those initial mm. obstacles are, are looked at. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know there's a lot of tradition and stuff within the the garments that are worn but I always wonder you know will they do away with the wig or will they diversify the wig because it's not it's like a standard wig isn't it? <laughs> you want you want a jerry curl don't you I don't know I, just... <laughs> I think um it's the, the, the benefit of it and this is the benefit that I can definitely recognize as well is that it does give an element of anonymity in that you can be representing anybody because especially with the way that the bar works there's something called the cab rank rule which is whereby provided that you you can receive a case and provided that it's a case that falls within your your legal expertise and you're free on that day you're expected to take it and that's good because it means that let's say you're a far more senior barrister than I and you're representing someone accused of murder. The public can't say, you know, why are you representing a murderer? Because the reality is through the cab rank rule, you are obliged to take that case on. But actually having the wig protects you a bit. It gives you that anonymity to feel confident in doing your job. And I think it's also a leveler. So certainly as a young barrister, certainly perhaps as a young black barrister as well. I think if I approach a client just in my suit, based on, they might not, but they might have their own views on my level of competence, just seeing how I look. But if I'm in my wig and my gown, they, it almost all of a sudden makes them think, okay, well, he is a barrister, so let me take yeah. everything seriously. So it can make your job easier in yeah. that regard. And I think there certainly is a, a conversation maybe one day to be had about the color of the wig. That was an aside. That also was a question not on the sheet. I just thought, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the time, time has gone really quickly. It's so easy to talk to. We could talk to you all day, but we've come to the point where we've got um, uh, to ask you our melanin magic question, which is, what are your hopes and dreams for Black British culture in the next five to 10 years? And do you have any insights or ideas on how we're going to get there? Sure. So overall, I actually think the current trajectory is positive. And the reason I say that is when I think of some of the most inspirational people in society now, and not just in law or politics, but just generally, and even what I think that just the mainstream would think of now as well, I think about Stormzy's Brit performance when he mentioned Grenfell Tower. I think of, of Dave when he sung the Black song. And um, I see these individuals, these young Black individuals just doing incredible things. And... I remember when I was going through school and having uh, an African sounding name, but that wasn't cool. And at least, oh, oh, that's how other people saw it, I should say. And I think I'm so pleased to just see things changing now. Mm -hmm. um, and actually for the younger generation coming up, it's like you'll see a footballer with a, a name originating from Africa or parts of Africa. And back when I was in school, someone might make a comment about the name. Now it's just so normal. And they'll pronounce mm. the name completely fine. They won't even stutter. It's just what's so hard to, it's not hard. 
And I'm really pleased to see that happening. So I think overall, to surmise that, I think if this can be continued and harnessed, and I think organizations such as yours being supported that are showcasing the work Black Brits are doing, I think we'll actually be will actually be brilliant enough. And actually the things that come about as a result of that will just have really far reaching benefits. I think if you're a young black person growing up right now, there are so many people that look like you you can be inspired by no matter what industry that you wanna go into. And I just feel like while there's momentum in that regard, it cannot be lost because it's easy to normalize it, but back previously, that was not the case. People that look like us weren't showcased like that. So. I think we need to continue doing what we are in terms of showcasing the, the black individuals that are doing good stuff. And yeah, that's what I'd like to see. But yeah, sorry, the second part of your question was an insight into how that can continue. And yeah, I think that's supporting organizations such as yourselves. And actually it's all just being a bit more vocal about the things we're doing um, so that other people can actually see it and think, oh, I, can, I, I, I could be like that person. So yes, that would, be my, that. That would be my answer. Love that. Very well-rounded. I wouldn't expect anything less for Christian, to be honest. <laughs> Ten points. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Christian, it's been amazing speaking to you. I'm massively inspired. I, I think whether you're old, young, in between, everything that, about, that we've discussed today, somebody can take something from it. So I'm so pleased that we finally got you onto the podcast. Yay! Uh, uh, yeah, Steph, I've really genuinely enjoyed this. And I've learned about myself, actually, just speaking through some of these experiences. So... Um, oh. pleasure. Could you just before you we let you go, let us know how we can get in touch with you? Like you know, share your ha- social media handles and where we can pre-order your excellent book from. Brilliant. Um, Twitter is at Christian Kamali. So Christian is spelled, um, I suppose, like the religion, and Kamali is K-A-M-A-L-I. And then on Instagram, we're the Law in sixty seconds. And in terms of the book, it's the Waterstones link is, is available for pre-order. So if you type in Know Your Rights, Christian Weaver, it should come up. And yes, the pre-order link is this. That would be amazing. And I, I would like to think the book can really, really help your life as well. It's not very expensive at all. It's, I think, 7 or 8 99 So it's a sort of thing that hopefully won't cost too much, but I really hope can bring genuine benefit to, to people's lives. Yeah. It seems like it's the, the pocketbook that we all need to to have on hand. Wow, 26 and a published author. That is amazing. Putting us all to shame. Putting us all to shame. But you know what? I'm going to ride a few goat tails. I'll be like, I know him. I've spoken to him before. (laughs) (laughs) So that is it from us today. Thank you so much. Like I said before, I know lots of our listeners, whether old or young or something in between, have taken so much from the conversation today. Thank you to our listeners for listening and joining us. And we'll see you again next time.